You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, friends. Glad you guys are here. Thanks for, uh, for joining us at Midtown today. Uh, you guys, we inhabit an impatient nation. And there's one thing in every one of our lives that illustrates this perfectly. Pizza. According to a recent nationwide study conducted by Wakefield Research, 96% of those surveyed said that they will knowingly consume extremely hot food or drink when they know it will burn their mouth. 96% of people say they do that, and 63% say they do it on a regular basis. In other words, we would rather produce lasting pain in our bodies than endure two minutes of patience to let our pizza cool off. And the study went well beyond the things that we eat and drink. It went into a variety of other instances of impatience in our lives. 71% of people, according to the study, frequently speed to get to their destination faster. 62% of people wait less than a minute when they're put on hold before hanging up. And 60% of drivers report honking at a car in front of them before the, or when the light turns green to get them to go quicker. I'm sure no one in this room has ever done any of those things, though, right? <laughs> and here's the kicker in the study. In the middle of all those examples of impatience, 80% of these people said, I'm patient. They self-reported about how patient they were and then went through all these examples of impatience in their lives. So we live in an impatient nation, and we don't even realize it. And the reason we don't realize it is because our whole culture is reinforcing impatience in us. It goes beyond our food and drink. It is the water we swim in. Our consumer capitalist culture is built on impatience. Self-checkout lines at grocery stores discourage patience. Don't go talk to the human. Our robot is much faster. One-click shopping and Amazon Prime are like perfect little impatience pills for us. They create an expectation that the things we really want and need can come instantly to us. And so we spend more money in order to avoid the challenge and difficulty of waiting for something. And our tech teaches us the same thing. Turn on the TV, and in seconds, you will have access to dozens of streaming services catered exactly to your precise interests. The algorithm knows you. Wi-Fi is available everywhere, meaning you never have to wait for information or entertainment. Just log in to wherever you are, and you can enter into a digital world. Earlier this week, I just Google searched the word impatience, and within 0.38 seconds, I had more than 66 million results on the word. I don't have to wait for that. I get it instantly. One of my favorite comedians and cultural commentators, his name's Bo Burnham, he wrote an entire song about this called Welcome to the Internet. He said, welcome to the internet. Have a look around. Anything that brain of yours can think of can be found. We've got mountains of content, some better, some worse. And if none of it's of interest to you, you'd be the first. And then the bridge goes like this. Could I interest you in everything all of the time? A little bit of everything all of the time. Apathy is a tragedy, boredom is a crime, anything and everything, all of the time. And because our tech has trained us that everything comes quickly and easily, everything and every, everything, everywhere, all of the time, we actually don't know what it looks like to wait for anything in our world. Waiting is not a pattern that we build into our lives. There's actually a computer science professor at the University of Massachusetts that proved this recently. Uh, he examined the online viewing habits of more than 6.7 million internet users, which first I'm like, brave move, man. But internet, internet users viewed their uh, kind of tendencies, and the goal was to test how long viewers would wait at a link 
before ditching it if the page didn't load? How long would they be patient? How long would they wait for the thing that they clicked on? And he found that people began abandoning the video or, or link that they clicked on after a whopping two seconds. It took them two seconds when the thing didn't load to ditch it all together. Our tech, Tom said, that long? Really? Shocking, right? Our technology has conditioned us to get exactly what we want, when we want it, and if we have to patiently wait for longer than two seconds, we give up. We can't face the difficulty of waiting. And everywhere else we look in our culture, this is the pattern. We spend, in America, $200 billion every year on fast food, sacrificing quality and health because we don't want to wait. We speed up dating. We speed date, first of all. Hilarious idea, right? That building a good, healthy, intimate relationship with someone can happen quickly. But then we also build apps where you swipe right or swipe left. You don't need to actually go meet up with the person. Well, just speed this process up, right? You don't have to wait. We look for quick fix diet and workout plans to get the abs that took a model or an athlete a lifetime to obtain and maintain, but we want it quickly. And this is so ingrained in us that we actually look oftentimes at impatience as a virtue. Look at the people that we elevate in our culture. They're the most self-driven people. They're the ones who force their way to the top. Those are the people we praise, the impatient ones, the ones unwilling to wait. But here's the crazy fact about all this. In that sort of impatient world, when we become people who refuse to wait, it has a devastating toll, takes a devastating toll, on our health. There were numerous medical studies I looked up this week from the Journal of American Medical Association, from the Journal of Biosocial Science, from universities. And all of these studies are linking impatience to high blood pressure, which means increased risk for things like heart attacks. Also, obesity, because if you're not willing to wait to forego present satisfaction for something better, then it's likely that you're going to eat that second piece of cake. And it's also linked directly to financial insecurity, because people who are unwilling to wait, well, they're just going to spend their money how they want, when they want. And it's not just our physical and financial well-being. Our emotional and spiritual well-being is harmed by impatience. See, when we inhabit this culture long enough, when we have a culture that only exists to develop impatience in us, we'll become less emotionally and spiritually capable of dealing with difficulty or distress when it arises in us. Because at its core, impatience is an attempt at escapism. That's what impatience is. It responds to difficulty and distress by trying to avoid it, or get around it, or angrily rage against it in some way. I like how Henry Nouwen defines this with two other authors, Donald McNeil and Douglas Morrison, in their book, Compassion. He writes, impatience is inner restlessness. Experiencing the present moment as empty, useless, meaningless. It's wanting to escape from the here and now as soon as possible. Escape from the difficulty or distress that I'm going through as soon as possible. And the reason that's destructive for us emotionally and spiritually is because every part of our life involves difficulty or distress to some degree. Marriages, parenting, vocation, relationships, all the seemingly mundane things that you do on a daily basis require some level of ability to endure distress or difficulty. Patience is required just to live as a healthy human in the world. And so if we become people in a culture that don't know how to cultivate patience, we will never be able to navigate suffering and pain and loss and distress well. There's actually a doctor that wrote all about this in his experience. His name was Paul Brand. He was an orthopedic surgeon who traveled all over the world. He served some of the most sick people in the world, some of the most distressed people in the world. And when he related on this experience, he traveled all over and then came back to the U.S., he noticed a distinct difference between people in some of the most impoverished cultures and places in the world and people in America. 
He said this in his book, Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. He said, after the war, I moved to India, just as partition was tearing the nation apart. And in that land of poverty and omnipresent suffering, I learned that pain can be borne with dignity. It was there, too, that I began treating leprosy patients, social pariahs whose tragedy stems from the absence of physical pain. But in the U.S., a nation whose war for independence was fought in part to guarantee a rights to the pursuit of happiness, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid distress at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. In other words, what Brand is noting is that American culture is uniquely devoid of emotional and spiritual tools to handle pain and disappointment because we've been taught, get through distress, be impatient in distress, don't deal with distress. Our comfort and means have made us impatient people, and it's leading us to physical and financial and spiritual oblivion in our lives. Welcome to church, you guys. So what can we do? What can we do in this sort of impatient culture? And the answer is simple, though not easy. We need to learn what it looks like to become patient people. A life of holistic unity with God, with others in the world, is a life shot through with patience. That's the only sort of life that can navigate distress and difficulty well. And that's actually located in the word itself. The Latin root of patience is the word patior, which literally means to suffer. Patience is, by definition, learning how to navigate suffering well. That's why in some of the older English translations of the Bible, when patience is translated to English, they use the word long-suffering. It's not a word we use very often in our culture, but that's what patience is, long-suffering, learning to engage the distresses and difficulties of our lives well. That's why the great French mystic Simone Weil said that waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. The thing that Whale and the scriptures understand about patience, friends, is that it's always rooted in trust, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. See, we can only practice patience when we trust in something that's more powerful than the distress or difficulty that's right in front of us. And so the reason people become impatient isn't necessarily because they're intrinsically angry. It's because they're missing trust in something. They don't trust something beyond their current circumstances, and so they don't know how to navigate those things. Patience is trust, long-suffering trust. We're continuing in a teaching series here at Midtown entitled Character Matters. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel together, and we're examining the ways in which these texts teach us about what it looks like to live as people of character in the world, people who are transformed by God and live out that transformed life. And today, we're going to explore uh, the story of Saul, the first king of Israel. And it's in his example of impatience, in the story we're going to read together, that we learn about how we can become people of patience in our own time and place. And so if you have a Bible, friends, open it with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel 13. This is on the front end of your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. In other words, it'll be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. 1 Samuel Chapter 13, starting in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 out of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home to their tents. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that, it was, that was at Gebah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And when all Israel had heard that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines, 
and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines, the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth When the Israelites saw that they were in distress, for the troops were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me in the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul replied, well, when I saw the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes the thing we want isn't the thing we truly need. That's certainly true in the case of Israel at this point in their history. Just a few chapters earlier, we read through this last week in 1 Samuel 8, in a crisis of leadership, they demand a king to rule over them like the rest of the nations around them. And that's noteworthy because to that point in Israel's history, their king, their ruler, the one who had protected them and sustained them in the course of their history, their king was God. And so that demand of a human king was really a way of saying, we think this human can actually secure us better than God. We think we can rely upon this human better than God. And we don't want to wait for God to show up. We don't want to wait for God to bring peace and life to us. We want a king now. And God's response in that story is remarkable. He warns them. He says, this isn't going to be good for you. But he also says, okay, you can choose that. He gives the people the dignity of choice. He doesn't endorse the king, but he also doesn't prevent the king. Because that's what love does. Love always gives the dignity of choice to the beloved. Love is not coercive. It's always invitational. And invitations can be rejected. He lets his people make a bad choice. And so in the chapters, since chapter 8, we've learned that Samuel, God's prophet to the people, has anointed a man named Saul to be their king. And Saul, by every possible measurement, is exactly the sort of king that you'd want. He comes from a wealthy family. He's good-looking and tall and strong and outwardly fit. In chapter 9, Saul is described this way. They say, There was not a man among the sons of Israel more handsome than he. He was taller than any of the people from his shoulder and upward. He is the Brad Pitt of kings. If ever, yeah, I saw a wolf whistle in the back. (laughs) If ever there was a man who should lead from a worldly perspective, it's Saul. And things actually go pretty well for him at first. He has a couple military victories in the chapters before this. And then as we roll into chapter 13, we learn that he's established a standing army for Israel, one of the essential parts of establishing security for them from their enemies. 
And then in chapter 13, there's another victory in this passage. Saul's son defeated a garrison or an outpost of the Philistines. And so over and over again, the text seems to be saying, at least at first, that the choice of a king is going great for the people. Their impatience actually led them to security and peace. The economy's great, gas prices are down, right? Whatever it is, they feel very secure in their king. But things don't stay that way. See, that's the thing when we make impatient choices. Sometimes on the front end, they look like we're making great choices, but as time passes, we learn they've been destructive ones. See, Jonathan's attack on the Philistines has actually stirred up a hornet's nest, and the Philistines are responding. That's what starts and kicks off the anxiety of Saul in this passage. And the description of their response in the text is pretty noteworthy. First, it says that Israel has become odious to the Philistines, which is a really clever word, odious. Some of you may have uh, obnoxious in your Bible, but the, the word that's used there is actually stinky or smelly. The Philistines have become uh, just repulsed by this stench of this little nation around them. It's like Israel's a stink bug to them. And so they're like, all right, let's, let's squash this thing once and for all. They're not intimidated by Israel. This victory was not noteworthy, and the Philistines are like, all right, they're kind of being trolls at this point. We need to go take care of them. They're odious to the Philistines. And then the text says that in order to take care of the stink bug, they rally to Michmash. Thousands of Philistine soldiers show up, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, it says. And then we even hear that they brought thousands of chariots with them, which is another really important detail in this passage. See, the place that they show up, Michmash east of Beth-Avon, most scholars think that that was in the hill country of Israel, so it's rocky and mountainous territory, which means chariots would be utterly useless there. Chariots couldn't get through this rough terrain, so why bring them? Intimidation. They're trying to show off their power. They're trying to intimidate Israel. Here, this is less about practicality and more about production. And we see this all the time with empires throughout the world. We've seen this all over the 20th century. You know, when a dictator wants to show off their power, what do they do? They get a camera set up, and then they march all of their troops through the streets with missiles and guns and the rest. Or when a guy's at the gym and he wants to show off, he tears off his sleeves and flexes a bunch in front of the mirror, right? That's what we do. That's what humans do to show off their power and strength. And this show of force works to perfection for the Philistines. The response of the Israelites when they see the Philistine forces is immediately to flee. And there are actually some archaeologists that have done some digging from this period of time and have found an image that they think is expressive of what Israel was up to here. So I've got the image I want to share with you guys. This is Israel's response to the Philistines mustering at Michmash. They're terrified. They're hiding in caves and holes and rocks and cisterns, even in tombs, the text says, which is also a really funny detail, right? I mean, imagine you're fleeing the Philistines and you come across a tomb and you look back at the Philistine army growing, you look back at the tomb, you're like, well, I'm dead anyway, right? So you just jump in the tomb, right? Like, I'm going to end up here anyway. I might as well just chill now. And there's deep irony in their retreat here. It's supposed to strike us as readers. Israel got exactly what they wanted. They got Brad Pitt as their king. They got an army. They got worldly security. And yet at the first moment of distress, when those things are threatened, they flee in terror. As it turns out, the things they wanted, the things they impatiently clamored for, weren't the things they really needed. And so that brings us in the story to Saul. And just two chapters earlier, we learned that Samuel had promised Saul that before the battle he would show up and that seven days would pass and that Samuel would come and bring offerings to the Lord before Saul entered into battle. But there's something deeper than just a practical offering at play here. 
because Samuel's a prophet, right? Samuel's a, a spokesman for God. So he represented the heart and mind and will of God to the people. And so when he asks Saul to wait, he's not just saying wait for the offering. He's saying wait for the heart and mind and will of God before you act. Wait for the Lord. And so the central question for Saul in this passage isn't just about a burnt offering. The question is deeper. Is he willing to wait on the Lord in his distress? Does he patiently trust the character of God to bring life and peace in the middle of his hardship? And that's another critical point in the story, you guys. See, it's in our moments of deepest distress and hardship that we actually learn what we trust in. It's really easy to say that we trust God when things are going well. It's when things start to get difficult that we find out if we really do trust God. It's when our work is unfulfilling or challenging. It's when parenting seems like too much to bear. It's when we're overwhelmed with loneliness. It's when we're angry at the world around us. When we aren't getting the kids or the partner or the success that we really want. It's then, in our patience or impatience in those moments, that we find out what we really trust. And that's precisely what we see in the character of Saul here. We see that for as much as he seems to trust the Lord to this point in his life, His impatience in this story ultimately reveals where his trust really is. And so his bad example can actually teach us something about how we practice patience in our lives. I think we see that in three different ways, three different parts of the story. We see it in the distress in the story, the decision in the story, and the decree in the story. The distress, the decision, and the decree. First, the distress. Saul's simple task, not easy, but simple task, is to patiently trust that Samuel and by Samuel, that God will show up and that God will deliver the people. But that's not an easy choice, especially when distress is pressing in on him. Notice all the distressing circumstances that surround Saul. The Philistines mustered to fight, so there's the distress of opposition to the will of God. Imagine what Saul must be thinking as he wakes each morning and sees the Philistines growing in number. Sure, he'd love to trust God, but look at all this stuff he has to fight against. Look at all this stuff around him that's convincing him he can't trust in God. He has to take action. What's he going to do when all that hardship overwhelms him? And then there's also the distress of timing in this passage. It says he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And so on top of opposition, Samuel's timing isn't exactly ideal. God's timing isn't exactly ideal, according to Saul. So he's got the opposition of timing, the distress of timing. And then there's the distress of identity. He says, the people began to slip away from me. That that was the motivating factor for him. People are losing their trust in the king. And he is insecure in his identity. Who am I really? I mean, if I'm not a good king that can lead people, who am I? And so the distress of identity loss presses in on him. He's surrounded on all sides, tempting him to become impatient and to take things into his own hands. And while none of us are kings over armies of thousands, that I know of, at least at this point, I'm really interested in learning. Oh, Lincoln say he might be. None of us are kings over thousands. But these same sorts of distresses press in on us all the time, friends, provoking us to become impatient in our lives. We have distresses of opposition. Sure, I'd like to patiently trust the way and work of God. I'd like to patiently trust that that's best for me. But all these opposing forces are really, really strong. I'd love to spend time in prayer and reflection with God, but have you seen my schedule, though? I'd love to be patient and trust God's advice to love my neighbor, but have you seen my neighbor, though? I'd love to be patient and trust God's call to be generous with my time and money, but 
Have you seen the economy? Friends, our lives are constantly packed with forces of opposition. Forces that are pulling us away from patient trust in God and towards impatient busyness or anger or hoarding. And it's not just distresses of opposition like that. It's also distresses of timing. We always love the idea of trusting God in our lives so long as it works out on our calendar. But as soon as our timeline gets thrown off, or as soon as we have this desire that we want fulfilled that God doesn't fulfill on our timing, then we get impatient. We get mad at God. We get sad at our lives. Our lack of control distresses us, and we run to impatience because of it. And then, just like Saul, we often feel the distress of identity loss as well. We'd like to believe that God really does love us, that God calls us beloved, and there's nothing we have to do to earn that belovedness. But what about when we fail? What about about when things at work aren't going so well? What about when we don't have a relationship that we're constantly looking for affirmation in? What about then? See, patience might be simple, but it's not easy amidst all of those distresses. And the truth is that oftentimes in our lives, our most distressed moments and circumstances are where sin creeps in the most. Most of us do not wake up in the morning thinking, I really want to do messed up stuff today. I'm down to talk to you if that's true for you. I'd love to hear what that looks like for you. But most of us don't wake up that way, right? Most of us wake up and then some distress or some difficulty leads us to impatience and to act out of that impatience wrongly. We impatiently choose to speak a lie instead of the harder and more patient act of speaking the truth. We impatiently choose an unhealthy relationship instead of the harder, more patient way of waiting for a healthy one. We impatiently choose to rely upon our work for our identity instead of the harder, more patient work of resting in our identity in God. We impatiently choose to distract ourselves from what's going on in our souls instead of actually slowing down and listening to God, allowing God to work in us. And we do all this because we're unwilling to wait for God. We're unwilling to pursue God and trust God to meet us patiently. And friends, when we find ourselves in these situations, we need to remember a couple different things that are true about what it means to be human in the world. First, God never promised that we would live lives without difficulty or distress. He promised redemption and restoration in and through that difficulty and distress. The promise of God is not a comfortable life. It is a life of God's presence and peace in the midst of discomfort all the time. It's the patient road of embracing God's way and work in our lives. So that's the first thing. It was never promised that we wouldn't experience difficulty and distress. We should expect it. We should know that that's coming. And then secondly, it's precisely in our distresses that we often mature the most. We shouldn't want to skip by them because we often realize more about who we are in our distresses than in any other time in our lives. Trials and challenges and difficulties are the things that mature us because they expose the lies we might be believing about ourselves in the world. They expose the unhealthy tendencies that we might have. They expose our impatience. And so we need to learn the practice of patience and long-suffering in order to grow into the people that we're made to be. That's how long-suffering works. There's a great quote from a guy named Erwin Lutzer that I think captures this well. He says, The work that God does in us when we wait is often more important than the thing for which we wait. The work that God does in us when we wait is often more important than the thing for which we wait. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is a simple one. What is the distress that God has put in front of us? And how do we learn how to patiently endure that and grow into the people we're made to be? How do we learn to trust God in the middle of that distress? So that's the first thing we learn about patience here. 
what it looks like in the middle of distress. But we also learn about what it looks like to practice patience through the decision of Saul here. In the middle of his distress, look what he does. Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. That's the job of the prophet of God, not of the king. He breaks Deuteronomic law here. When the odds are stacked against him, when it seems like everything is falling apart, Saul's decision isn't ultimately to patiently trust God. It's to take matters into his own hands. It's to take control of his life, to become self-reliant. And that trait, taking control and becoming self-reliant, that's something our culture often praises. We love glorifying the person who charts their own path, the person who's self-made, who seems confident in their own power. But a person of character, according to the scriptures, is precisely the opposite. The person of character in the Bible is the one who recognizes their weaknesses, who recognizes that they are utterly dependent upon God and lives in constant awareness and reliance upon God. They don't assert themselves. They don't attempt to dominate in the same way that our world tells us. And that condition, that character, is actually reiterated all over the Bible. Psalm 33 says it this way, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Well, God speaks this in Isaiah 66. He says, This is the one to whom I will look, to the humble, to the contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. And Jesus himself, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That is, blessed are those who don't try to dominate, but who are aware of their need. Saul's attempt at strength in this passage is actually weakness because it illustrates the belief that his action can bring about life and peace, life and peace, and it severs him from the source of life and peace. There's a lack of trust in God's character and in his power. And so Paul's poor, or Saul's poor decision here reminds us that true patience, true trust in God's character and life and power is actually a move of strength not of weakness. See, oftentimes we think patience is passive weakness. We think it's like sitting on our hands in some way and not doing anything, but that's not what patience is. Patience takes tremendous courage and endurance. It's active. It's hopeful. It's rooted in deep trust and abiding peace that God will show up and that my circumstances actually don't define what God is going to do, that God is greater than the things that are right in front of me. That takes courage and, and great, great bravery to make that choice. There's a theologian named William Barclay who I think puts it really well. He says, the word patience never means the spirit which sits with folded hands and simply bears things. It is victorious endurance and constancy under trial. It is Christian steadfastness, the brave and courageous acceptance of everything life can do to us, and the transmuting of even the worst into another step on the upward journey. It is the courageous and triumphant ability to bear things which enables someone to pass breaking points and not to break, and always to greet the unseen with a cheer. Patience is strength, friends. It's strength in the work and the way of God. And that's one thing that makes Saul's decision here so tragic. See, immediately after he took things into his own hands, who shows up? Samuel. He barely finishes with the offering. Samuel did show up in the allotted time. He just didn't show up as early as Saul wanted him to. Saul just needed to wait a little bit longer for God. That's a great note for all of us in our lives. We might need to wait just a little bit longer for God. Friends, you never know when and how God might show up in the middle of your distress. You don't know. It could be today. 
It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be a year from now. You don't know. And so our task is simply to wait, to trust that God will. And so we learn the importance of patience through the distress and the decision in this story. And we finally learn it through the decree at the end of the story. When Samuel shows up, he says to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler. In other words, Saul's impatience leads him to the exact opposite result he was hoping for. He was hoping that his grasping and taking control of his life would lead to his gain. It actually leads to his loss. He thought his self-reliant grasping would produce peace in life, and it sends him instead farther away from the source of those things. Friends, the decree of God through Samuel is a pertinent reminder to every single one of us that when we choose to impatiently pursue our own priorities instead of patiently trusting God, when we impatiently take control of our own lives, it will only lead us to misery. It will lead us away from the things that we're really longing for. The pathway to full and free life that we're looking for is only navigated by patience. It's only accessible when we're willing to wait, to believe that God can show up, will show up, in the middle of our distress. And if you ever doubt that truth, if you ever wonder if that's actually the way that God works, recall one moment in history, the cross. See, the cross is the ultimate decree of God in Christ. It's the ultimate decree that distress never gets the last word. The patient trust in God always produces life. In fact, it's the culmination of Jesus' whole life of patience. Recall Jesus' patience. The things that he waited and endured through in order to produce life for all things. He was patient with his disciples when they regularly refuted him and did a whole bunch of dumb stuff. He had patient grace for the outsiders and the others. He was patient in his work. He didn't force the issue. He didn't overwork. He didn't use others as a means to his success end. He was patient in persecution, even extending grace to his enemies. He was patient in Gethsemane as all of his anxiety and suffering and pain pressed in on him. And he was patient when his life was on the line. Why? Because he trusted that in the middle of that distress, in the middle of that difficulty, God would bring life. Friends, for all of the distress that we feel in our lives, for all of the reasons that we become impatient, Christ had more. And his patience in distress is precisely what brings life. His patience on his way to the cross is precisely what leads to the resurrection. That's how God works, through patience in distress. Redemption and restoration are coming. It just requires patient trust. And so today, this morning, Christ is inviting all of us to that same practice. He's asking us, will you trust me? Will you patiently rely upon me? Will you rely on the cross and the resurrection? Because with me, what seems to be an obstacle becomes a way. With me, what seems to be a wall becomes a door. With me, the one who seems to be an outcast becomes a brother and a sister. Jesus has changed our history, friends. Our lives are not random, sad occurrences and accidents, but constant opportunities to patiently place our trust in God. And when we become people who are willing to wait, when we are willing to rely upon him, 
He promises that all the distress of today becomes like labor pains that produces new life on the other side. So look to the cross in your distress. Because it's there that Christ invites all of us. And all he asks of us is one simple thing. Be patient.